Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 2. We're continuing in our series called The Good News Kingdom, and uh, we're looking at the birth narratives of our King. And I want to ask the question this morning, why do we spend so much time giving attention to a baby? There are probably kids who have been born in the last year who are going to grow up and become presidents of the United States of America, right? How many of you search them out? How many of you are going to find them and look forward to them? We're not. But there is something unique about Jesus that the, a group of people, as we'll see in a few minutes, will come to seek him and worship him even as a baby. The only time I know of baby Jesus being mentioned is in Talladega Nights, right? Any of you pray to the six, seven pounds, eight pounds, six pounds baby Jesus? There's not much that we think about when it comes to Jesus other than I think his time when he died on the cross and walked out of the grave. But there is something significant about Jesus coming as a baby. I think we, we minimize <clears throat> sometimes the importance of youth in kids and children. And yet Jesus comes as a baby. And he comes to be worshipped as a baby. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, we have a story that Matthew records for us about people coming to worship baby Jesus. And in verse 1 it says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. And they asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it arose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child his mother married, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This morning, I want to look at this passage of Scripture and show you the significance of a baby being born to be worshipped by all peoples, including you and me today. So, Father, help us as we look at this wonderful passage about the humanity of Jesus taking on flesh and coming in the form of a baby. 
to be worshipped by people all around the world. Spirit, what we need you to do is impress upon us the beauty and the worth and the significance of this child so that we too may fall down and worship and present our gifts to him. So, Spirit, would you meet with us and cause us to see the beauty of Jesus this morning? We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen. Obviously, the story centers on Jesus, but specifically, the story hinges on this phrase, where is the one who is born the King of the Jews? In verse 2, he's identified not just as a king, but very specifically as the king of God's people. Emmanuel, or God with us in the person of Jesus, he was born into a very specific context and into a very specific people. And that people was the nation of Israel. And we've dealt earlier with the significance of Jesus taking on the story of Israel. But here, there's an outsider, Herod, who is the king of the Jews presently, but is an, from, he's from this town, this nation called I-D-U-M-E-A, Idumea. And he is an outsider, he is not a Jew himself, and he's been nearly king of the Jews for 40 years. 40 B.C. is when he took his throne, and Jesus, this is so weird, I don't know if you know this, Jesus was probably born around 5 B.C., why we just couldn't make it zero, I'm not sure, okay, but... It's 5 B.C., and so he reigned all the way up until about two years after the birth of Jesus, till about 4 uh, B.C. or 3 B.C. And he was the king of the Jews, in a sense, but no one worshipped him. No one looked to him. The Israelites did not look and perceive him to be a true king of the Jews. He was installed as the king by the Romans. And so now people come, and in verse 4, Magi come and they say, where is the Messiah? Where is this king? And, and I don't know how, but Herod had come to understand that the Jewish people had this messianic expectation, and now someone was coming to him with this understanding that this Messiah had finally been born. This long-awaited God-anointed ruler who would come and destroy all the kingdoms and bring down every rule and all the rulers of the world and would establish a kingdom that would never end. This is the Messiah. And Herod is asking, where is this king born? And so, when the Magi came to Jerusalem, they were asking, hey, I mean, this is my picture of it, okay? I don't get this. This is like reading between the lines. They come to Jerusalem and they're like, what? there's no party here? Why is there no celebration? There's this massive king who is born and you guys are all just living life normally. It's almost like the American shopping experience during Christmas. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but the reality is, is like they're expecting something massive and nothing is happening. And so they begin asking all around, like, where, you guys know what's happening? Did you hear about this? And word gets to Herod. And so Herod wants to know, well, where is this king to be born? And how does he arrive at this conclusion? Well, he gathers everyone he could of significance and people who could help him. He gathers the chief priests and the teachers of the law. 
And this is not just, if you're familiar with the Jewish uh, uh, ruling system, this is not just the Sanhedrin, the 70 people, the elders who led and ruled Jerusalem, but he brings all the religious leaders from all over Jerusalem. The chief priests here consist of like the high priests and all the priestly people, the, the leaders of the priests, the captain of the guards, the people who are in charge of the finances for Israel. He brings all the teachers of the law, or the lawyers, the legal experts of the Old Testament. And he gathers them all together, and these are primarily Sadducees and the Pharisees, if you're as well familiar with the Jewish people <clears throat> during Jesus' day. The Sadducees would be all the chief priests, and the Pharisees would be all the Jewish leaders and the teachers of the law. And he gathers all these people together, and he says, tell me where in the Scriptures your Messiah is to be born. And so they quote Micah chapter 5, verse 2. <clears throat> Micah 5, verse 2 says this, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. Okay, this passage of Scripture was written around 700 B.C. So, 695 years before what we're looking at right now. 695 years previously, the prophet Micah prophesied that a ruler would come out of Bethlehem. And this by itself is remarkable. Not just that a, a specific plate, sorry, that a specific ruler will come, but it will come from Bethlehem. And what I love about this, you may not catch this, is that it's Bethlehem Ephrata. <clears throat> That's like Syracuse, New York. Why? I know it's hard to believe there's other Syracuses in the United States besides New York. There are 220 Springfields in America. Okay? And there's more than one Bethlehem in Israel. And so Micah identifies this place, Bethlehem, Ephrata, a very specific place. And it is a, such a specific place, it's unbelievable that it's mentioned because it's so tiny. It's... I, would, I don't want to make fun of anyone who grew up in a small, tiny little town. Okay, so I'm not going to mention any. But if you did, think of that town and even being smaller. Because, yeah, where I grew up in this weird town called Chittenango, but that's even too big for how small Bethlehem was. It's so small that when Joshua is listing out all the cities that he's sending all the people to in the lands, it's not even mentioned. This is a nobody town. And it may be a small, insignificant town, but it was the birthplace, according to Micah, to a mighty, powerful ruler. Now, even though Matthew <clears throat> does not add any more to the Old Testament quote than what we have right here, the Old Testament context of Micah depicts something remarkable, more remarkable than just a future ruler of Israel who will be born in this little tiny town of Bethlehem. He goes on to say in Micah chapter... Oh, I have a map for you, for all of you map people. <clears throat> Can you go back one? I forgot to tell you, but there's a Bethlehem way up here, and there's a Bethlehem way down here. Okay, and this is where Jerusalem is, if you can't <clears throat> see that. And Bethlehem is just about five to six miles, almost due south of Jerusalem. But this tiny little town, Micah goes on to say in his passage in Micah chapter 5, he says these things about this ruler from Israel. 
Number one, his origins are from old, from ancient times. The word old here is used of God himself several times in the Old Testament. God is the old one. The ancients of days. Maybe you've heard of that phrase before. He is the ancient one. This word can mean great antiquity, and its application to a future ruler is strong evidence that Micah perceives a supernatural ruler. Okay? And why I'm adding this to you? It's not just a tiny town, but it is a mighty, powerful, supernatural figure that Micah is actually speaking about. It says he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of Yahweh. This man, this supernatural man who's going to be born in Bethlehem, will have supernatural strength. He will actually have the strength of God himself upon him. This strength is what God will use to shepherd his people. Because it says he will shepherd his people in the majesty of Yahweh. In Ezekiel chapter 34, God himself appears as the shepherd of his people because all the shepherds of Israel at that time were false shepherds and leading the people of Israel away and towards idolatry. And Ezekiel speaks of one day a shepherd coming who will shepherd people to show them the majesty of their God. He goes on to say, and they will live securely. <clears throat> I don't know how much we take this for granted, but I'm going to reference a show I like. Any of you ever seen Vikings? Anyone ever seen? No. Um, anyone seen like any old war shows? Come on. Ancient war shows? What's fascinating is you never knew what day people were coming to raid your town. Does that make sense? Like as I watch this show Vikings... They're just going from town to town, pillaging, destroying, marauding, killing, raping, doing all kinds of things. And so the number one concern of like every tiny little village was what? Their safety. Their peace. That they're not going to be invaded by Egypt as they go up to fight Assyria. And Babylon's not coming over and destroying them as they go down to Egypt. And, and all these nations are not just going to come in and take over and destroy this little town to get some food to go where they need to go next. And here this promise is that this supernatural origin ruler who has the power and the strength of Yahweh to shepherd God's people is going to give security and peace to his people. And, notice this, his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Can you go to the next slide? His rulership will be universal. This is what is promised in Micah. Now, I also am going to add a little bit to this. When Herod was asking all these chief priests and these teachers of the law where they were to be born. Do you think they just walked in and said Bethlehem and walked out? No, I think they added a lot more to this context. They added a lot more to the story. They added, not only is he going to be born in Bethlehem, but there is this long-awaited Messiah who's going to come and destroy all the kingdoms of the worlds. Now, if you're Herod... <laughs> What do you perceive this to be? A threat. A significant threat. Even as a baby, 
he is threatened by this individual. When the Magi asked, where is the one who is born the king of the Jews? This brought and imposed a direct threat upon Herod himself. He began to think that his rulership, his kingship may come to an end. And if you know anything about King Herod, he did not do well with threats. One commentator of his day said it is safer to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. Because he was known to kill his wives and his sons to preserve his own rulership. So here is Herod, who's receiving this news of this king who is born, and he is a shameless tyrant. And he's done a whole lot of stuff. He's done achievements that Rome kept him there for 40 years, which was an achievement. He rebuilt the, or sorry, the temple in Jerusalem. He brought order out of disorder. He did lots of things, but he was very, very jealous for his own prestige and power and fame. Now, King Herod here becomes a picture of what happens when God's kingdom breaks into darkness. When God's kingdom, light, shines into darkness, there is threats being perceived by all of the darkness. And if we bring this personal to our own life, the darkness, the Herod, the sinfulness that is in us, when, when the kingdom of God shines its light into us, it, we perceive that as a threat. See, all of us, by instinct, are people who fight for self-preservation. One of the first instincts that, are, that we have when we are born is to just survive. Okay, and my daughter, I think it was my daughter, one of my daughters the other day told me, wouldn't it be cool if you could just bite your finger off, but you can't bite your finger off? I'm like, why not? Because she said, eventually, you don't want that to happen to you, and so your brain won't let you do it. I was like, tempted to try it, because <laughs> someone said I can't do something. And I... But the idea, again, is like, we're just so ingrained instinctively for self-preservation, and not just selfish or self-preservation physically, but holistically. We need to fight to preserve our reputation, our way of living, our belief systems. And all of these, our belief systems, our reputations, our way of living, all combine to give us an identity to th as to who we think we are as a person. They give us meaning and purpose. And when the kingdom of God and His light shines into those ways of living and our reputations and our belief systems that run counter to the kingdom of God, we immediately perceive God's kingdom as a threat. We think God's good news kingdom is a threat to our already existing way of life and our flesh wants to eradicate this king and his kingdom and preserve our own rule and our own authority. Did you feel threatened this week by someone else? Or some situation that you found yourself in? Is the American political world causing threatening situations to you? Are family situations a threat to you as you go into them in this Christmas season? 
Have you felt like you've had to preserve a belief system, your reputation? You had to preserve power? You had to take control over things? Did someone wound you, and in order to preserve your own life, you had to wound them back? See, when God's kingdom shows up, there's a war going inside of our soul because we think that to preserve our life, we need to get rid of those threats. And this is what Herod did. It's a picture of the darkness. It's a picture that when God's light shines in, it comes in to promise to destroy our sin. Our sin is not going to just be like, oh, that's okay, you can have it. There's going to be a war. There's going to be a self-preservation fight going on. But the good news of the kingdom of God is we don't have to be like Herod. There's a way to surrender everything to gain everything. And we see this personified in a very unique group of people. If you compare and contrast Luke and Matthew's uh, narrative accounts, if you, if you remember Luke's account, which is a little bit more popular in, um, I don't know, more popular in my life when you come to the Christmas story, who are the only people who worship King Jesus? Anyone know? In Luke's account. Shepherds. I don't think the wise men are in Luke, are they? This might, this might ruin my whole points. <laughs> Someone want to fact check me real quick? I didn't remember finding them in Luke. If they're in your Bible, you have the wrong version. I'm just kidding. No, no. I don't think the wise men actually show up. I think it's only the shepherds. In Matthew's account, who are the only people who worship Jesus? Wise men. Okay, few, few. Yes, online, I was right. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but my point in this is that both accounts are true. Does that make sense? It's not like one is right and one is wrong. But each writer chooses a group of people to focus on something. And so the question is, is why does Matthew choose to not include shepherds, but chooses to focus his attention on a group of people who are called magi. Look back in the middle of verse 1 and verse 2. It says, Magi came from the east, came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Okay, we could spend hours discussing who the magi are. But at the end of the day, you know what we're going to say? We don't really know. We don't really know who these magi are. Here's some things we can be fairly almost positive about. Is that they were a priestly order of what we would call in the ancient world magicians and astrologers. They were wise in interpreting the stars. And if you're familiar with the book of Acts in chapter 8, there's a, there's a man named Simon, a magician, who begins to follow disciples and he wants the power of disciples. And he says, give me that power. And, and Peter looks at him and says, you have a root of bitterness in you. You have no idea what you're even asking for. And so leave. So even in Acts chapter 8, there's one of these magi. There's... Four possible places that people give these, uh, the origins of these magi from. Number one could be Arabia, Babylon, 
Persia or Egypt. But it's almost virtually impossible to determine which one of these is correct. Why can we say these four? I should tell you that. These are the four known areas of the world where these magi historically have been known to be from. The main thing is that they were well acquainted or supernaturally acquainted with the Jewish messianic expectations. And interestingly, Arabia, Babylon, Persia, and Egypt all have Old Testament roots of God's people actually being transported there. And so potentially, 600 years before this event, Jewish people began to proselytize and evangelize and talk about a promised future Messiah. And they saw his star. What is that? Well, some people uh, think it's a supernova. Some people think it was Halley's Comet. Some people think it was a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn and Mars all joined together. And there's like dates for all of these things. I think the best explanation is that this was just a supernatural star. That there's just this star that God had revealed to these magi, and they knew of a story, and they began to follow that star because they understood what that star was like. Now, why is it a star? Why do they call it a star? Number one, it's in the heavens, and they studied it, and it looked like a star, which is why I have a hard time believing it with some of these other options I mentioned. Number two, I think it's a star because if you're familiar with the Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 24, you may not remember a guy named Balaam. You remember a donkey talking? You might remember that story, okay? Balaam is the prophet who is along that story that the donkey starts talking to, okay? And Balaam, a prophet, he's not even a prophet of Israel, prophesies about the future of Israel that says a star will come out of Israel. So again, Matthew is linking this star with Old Testament messianic expectations of this star, this ruler who is going to come. And these magi were led by the star until they got to Jerusalem. As I read through Matthew chapter 2, it's interesting. It's almost like the star got them there, and then when they got there, they didn't know what to do. And so they found out that he was supposed to be born in Bethlehem, and so they just start walking to Bethlehem, and as they're getting into Bethlehem, what happens again? It's almost as if this star just showed up again right over the house of the Messiah. So these foreign Gentiles hear of a star and travel potentially hundreds and hundreds of miles to come to Jerusalem to see nothing going on. Only here in be Bethlehem, like, well, this is why. There's not a party here. Let's go to this other city. And when they get there, a star appears over the house of the baby. And in the following passage, the last few verses of chapter 2, verses probably about 8 through 12, there are four, no, sorry, three verbs that depicts what these magi did. Number one, they rejoiced. They rejoiced that the star had reappeared to them. They, I mean, can you imagine this journey on camels? You're not like in a Tesla in a self-driving car. You're like on a camel looking for water, crossing deserts, you know, hoping people be hospitable to you. And as you're traveling all this way, you finally think you're there, you're not there. 
It's like most road trips with kids. And now all of a sudden they, they get to this house and all of a sudden the star reappears. How excited would you be? And they're not just excited they made a journey, but they're excited at, the, at the, what the journey represents, that they are here to see the king. And for me, it's hard to imagine them being so happy to see a baby. I just can't get over this fact that they just walked thousands of miles to see a little baby. The second thing they do is they fall down. They worship. Falling, they worshiped. That's exactly what the Greek says. They recognized the significance of this child, and they fell down on their knees immediately and worshipped him. Worship is simply to recognize the worth of someone. The more worthy an individual is in our eyes, the more worth we ascribe to them. The better athlete they are, the more worship we give to them. Okay, so all of you college fans, I'm glad you're college fans, but there are these people called professionals who are way better, okay? And you ascribe worth to those people because they're better, and they try just as hard. I, that's another joke, okay? But my point is, is that the idea is that the more worthy you see an individual in your own eyes, the more worth you give to them. And these people saw the worth of a baby, that they would give up their time, their energy, in a sense their life, to come and bow down to a baby child because they saw in this baby his worth. The Bible tells us that there is only one who is truly worthy of our worship. There's only one child, there's only one king that we look at and we could say, you are truly worthy of being worshipped. My question is, is this Christmas, do you see the worth in this child? Do you see the ancient of days, the God of old, supernaturally taking on flesh in the power of Yahweh himself? To be our king. And then when they bowed down, then finally they offered gifts. Down to the centuries, you can go to the next slide. Down to the century, all kinds of imaginative, fun meanings have been read into these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold because he was a king. Frankincense because he was divine. And myrrh for his suffering and death. But I think... You know, this is what he got, by the way. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Like, I heard this my whole life, and I have no idea what frankincense was until my wife joined a cultic oil hot club <laughs> called doTERRA, and she ordered this bottle of frankincense, and it cost $295 million. And I went, what the... What are, we, what are we buying? Frankincense? Okay. I've since learned the beauty and the joy of frankincense. Okay. <laughs> but my point is, is like, this is what they were given. Is gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
These types of gifts were expensive gifts given to future kings. This was very prominent in the day as highly gifts you'd give to a person of great worth. Frankincense on the left here and myrrh on the right here are both like resinous gums that are taken from trees. And they are very fragrant spices used in the best perfumes. In ancient times, incense was almost equally valuable because of the both widespread use in worship and for its aromatic powers in the, in, in the world where the only thing to do with distasteful odors was to cover them. What I mean by that is they didn't have Lysol. They didn't have Febreze. Well, they did. It was this. And these were very expensive, resinous gums. But secondly, the gold, frankincense, and myrrh you know why we don't understand what, why gold, frankincense, and myrrh, why they were given? <laughs> because we don't understand what redemption. The Old Testament, right? Okay? Isaiah chapter 60, if you will go to the next slide. It says this, Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. And the wealth of the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of the nations will come. So, go back. Don't let them keep reading. What I'm trying to help you to see in Isaiah chapter 60 is one day the nations are going to flock to Jerusalem. And the nations are going to bring all of their wealth to Jerusalem because of the coming king in Isaiah chapter 60. Okay, you can go back. Okay, and then catch this. Herds of camel will cover your land, young camels, and all from Sheba will come, which is modern-day Yebron, which is like the southern part of the uh, uh, Arabian Peninsula. No, what's that peninsula called? Is it the Arabian Peninsula? Bearing what? Gold and frankincense. See, why do they bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh? Just fulfill Old Testament scriptures. As gifts given to a royal king. This message in Isaiah chapter 60 is that when the nations are blessed and brought to Zion because of the Messiah, they will bring true gifts for the final king. Nations will come to the light of Jesus and the riches of the nations will come to Jerusalem. What do we take away from this? Jesus did not come just for the Jews. He came to the Jews for the sake of the Magi. He came to the Jews for the sake of you and for me. He came to be worshipped by all the nations. We have put our trust oftentimes in things that end up hurting us, but there is one to whom you can put your trust in who will never hurt you. In fact, not only will he never hurt you, he will only do good all of your days. He will only bring healing to your soul. He will only bring flourishing to your life. He will use His power to bring you good all your days. He will shepherd you and lead you into green pastures. He will take God's wrath so that you will never have to experience separation from God ever in your life. And this small baby is jealous for your worship. Because in worshiping Him, He will lovingly lead you with open arms to the Father who Himself is love. This leads us to worship Him. This leads us to stop seeking 
our own self-preservation, because in our own self-preservation, we will die. You know this to be true, and if you don't know it, you've seen it to be true. That in your own self-preservation, all it does is bring a desert and a wasteland to your life. It destroys relationships and relationships that you were made for, and it destroys your ability to actually perform your job well, and it destroys your relationship with your kids. It destroys everything. When you are all about preserving yourself, it will destroy you. And it destroyed Herod. And yet the Magi were people who could actually see that there was one that they were willing to give all of themselves for and to, who would actually bring them peace and joy. So this Christmas, I want you to look to a baby for peace and joy. By dying to yourself, stop fighting for your own preservation and look to the one who can actually preserve it for you. Jesus, thank you for a few minutes to think and reflect upon several men who make a long journey to rejoice, to bow down and worship, and to offer gifts worthy of a supernatural mighty king. So God, we pray that you will help us to fall down and to rejoice, and to worship this Christmas. We ask these things in Jesus' name.